What would comedians know about depression? That's what I find interesting. It's so hard to find any that have any experience. Yeah, like I don't understand that. I mean, here, this is the thing. Comedians make people laugh, so right. it doesn't make any sense. It's so it's counterintuitive. I, I'm really quite confused. That's our astounding <laughs> plot twist <laughs> in the premise of the show. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Our guest on this episode is someone who suspects the universe has always been trying to kill him, but he refuses to die. He's also a member of arguably the greatest sketch comedy group of all time. Hi, I'm Scott Thompson, and I'm in Studio City getting ready to talk about the hilarious world of depression. Scott Thompson is a stand-up comedian, author, actor, and one of the five members of the sketch group The Kids in the Hall. Starting in 1988, they had a hugely popular TV show in their native Canada, and the show then expanded to the U.S. and ran for several years. They made a movie, broke up, reformed. They still do tours and projects today. Scott played a lot of characters with the kids in the hall. He might be best known for cocktail lounge socialite Buddy Cole. Show business is full of actors, singers, dancers, and models. And then there's me. Actor, singer, dancer, model. Canadian. Buddy is a little more catty than Scott, but they have a lot in common. Americans know as much about Canada as straight people do about gays. <laughs> Americans arrive at the border with skis in July. And straight people think that being gay is just a phase. (laughs) A very long phase. Scott is deeply funny, but parts of his story are pretty serious. In 1975, he was in high school in Brampton, Ontario, Canada, when one day a classmate started shooting. Two people were dead and 13 wounded before the shooter killed himself. Scott witnessed some of the shootings. As you'll hear later on, those memories are still very much with him. Scott grew up in a big family, five kids, all boys. Very violent, um, a lot of holes in the walls. We played um, sports in the house. We actually had an ongoing hockey game in the basement. And the game ended when basically there were so many holes in the wall, (laughs) birds were roosting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the walls. <laughs> it was a very rough house. Uh, uh, my poor mother had a very tough time because she'd only grown up with girls. She never even had a father. So she had no idea what men were like. And then she pumped out five of them. And, and I'm the smallest one and I'm the most retiring. I'm not the most retiring, I'm, but I'm the most, like, I'm not I'm not big. or. But my brothers are all bigger and stronger. And um, it was, a, it was a, a very rambunctious. That's the word that they used back then, rambunctious. And I mean, back then, it's, that's how males communicated their affection, uh-huh. punch each other. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there wasn't a, I don't think I, I don't think the bruise on my shoulder healed until I left home. Because <laughs> literally every time I would pass a brother in the hall, they'd go, here, get me, here's one for me, and they just punch you in the shoulder. So, and I, I, I still, I still have a hard time, I understand that most people don't show affection that way, but it's still hard for me not to punch people that I really like. <laughs> <laughs> was comedy a thing? Is that where is that where your comedy took root? Yes, yes. Comedy was very important in my family, um, especially like if you couldn't, um, like if you couldn't excel in sports. Um, the only other way to excel was to be funny, mm. and so I wasn't really good in sports, so I was funny, and um, that was how 
I realize in the in the tribe of males that was how like I always say about comedy that comedy is physical is violence for physical cowards. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. it is a form of violence in a way. Comedy. I mean, all the language of comedy is violent. It's about killing and bombing and right. you, you know crushing. It's dying. very <laughs> dying. It's very violent. It's very male in a way. Uh-huh. And um, so if you're not and in terms of the way boys are the higher of boys in power. I think the, at the very top is the warrior. I mean, if we're talking like archetypal. And then the next thing I think would be the, the, the comic. Hmm. And the warrior always needs a funny person at their side when they go into battle. Um, and, that, and that's who I was. I was, I'm not the warrior, but I'm the, I'm the sidekick yeah. um, who's, um, who keeps the warrior happy. Scott said he is not and has never been the warrior. He doesn't remember the word depression existing in his house. We had a thing in my family called the black dog, uh-huh. which was a, it's a very Irish thing, which is basically, you know, when you, you have, you get blue. That's what Churchill called his depression, the black dog. Yes. Yeah. And so there were times in, in I think, all my family, um, there, my, my father particularly, I don't know if he suffered from depression, but there were definitely periods where we would say, we would call it being on the carpet. And that meant that you had to be very careful around your father because he was, his temper was like a hair trigger temper. And so when we were on the carpet, it meant that you had to be very quiet. You had to like tiptoe because you knew that an explosion was coming. And, and so we all did, none, none of us wanted to be the trigger. And, but eventually it would, be, there, it was usually me. And, and that sometimes I would do it on purpose just because I wanted to get it out of the way. I went like, okay, if I can't, I can't walk on the carpet anymore. So I would do things to him to make him explode. And then at least the explosions happened. And then the violence would happen and then there would be calm afterwards and then it would build up and build up and build up and then months later another explosion would happen. And there would be time and then interestingly enough, after my father would have these explosions, he would quite often he would he would withdraw. I think a lot of it was shame. Shame at, at the way he behaved, and um, he would be quiet and withdrawn for weeks, and then he would start coming out of his shell again, and then there would be a good good periods, good weeks, and then it would start again. When you say violence, physical violence, emotional violence, what, what kind of violence? Take your pick. All of it? All of it. Okay. Yeah. But mostly physical violence. Does being on the carpet refer to the pers- the people around the the person who's having yes. a tough time okay yes 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 have people around you had to be on the carpet before too yes yes and that is that is that is something i'm not proud of i'm quite ashamed of it mm-hmm. and i've worked very hard in my life to um uh, uh basically ameliorate it and 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 soften it and and learn to deal with it but yes i and i quite often i'll look around and i'll go oh Oh, people are afraid to trigger me because they know I'm going to blow up. And um, and that makes me feel awful because then I'm like, oh, I'm just like my dad. The difference is, it's a diff- I would never physically um, harm anyone. Like I would never actually do anything like that. Because I also know we live in a very different time that those things, that's not allowed. And also I understand what that does to a person. I understand the kind of um, legacy it leaves and the lasting harm. But, and then I was very, when I was younger, I thought, well, if I never ever hit anybody, I'll be okay. I'll have defeated the cycle. But then I start, I realized years later that, oh, I, I was doing it in different ways. I was doing it verbally. Mm. And then I had to start working on that. And I was like, oh, I didn't really solve anything. I just, you know, I, my brothers are all the same. Like we all know that we would never, we were so afraid of our father's violence that we would never um, do anything like that because we know what it's like. But then we all have these, we have these words, like we can really hurt people with words. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not even sure what's worse, to be honest. I really don't know. Scott Thompson hadn't come out as gay when he was a kid, but he thinks his dad picked up on it. He didn't know what to do with me, and he figured maybe if I hit him, I'll beat the gay out of him. Even though that was never actually said or expressed, that was a, such a taboo back then. Mm-hmm. But deep down, he must have sensed 
that I was not the same as the others. And he, he did know that. So Scott kept the whole gay thing a secret. I wasn't a complete queen, uh, but I wasn't super butch. I was kind of in between. But I definitely, you know, I, I, I think today you'd look at me and go, oh, that's a gay kid. But back then, no. Because being gay was so awful, so beyond the pale. The, the worst thing that a male could be that it wasn't even people. The thought of it was so terrible that people wouldn't even say it. Yeah, it was the worst insult you could say to another guy. It's absolutely. And I still believe that's true. I I actually, we can say all we like about, I actually still believe that males, um, the worst thing a male can be is a homosexual. And I still believe that. And maybe that's my uh, my scar and my wound that will never heal. But I still have a hard time believing when a young guy says, oh, I don't, I got gay friends. I don't care about that. And I'm like, I don't believe it. I wouldn't even care if my son was gay. I go, I bet you would. Mm-hmm. I, I just have this feeling. So when did you know, oh, yes, this is for sure. I am gay. Oh, I knew when I was like, Nine, yeah, eight or nine, yeah. And then, how long did you? Uh, how long was it till oh, you came out? Oh, oh, Twenty-four. Wait, hold on. Are you out now? I, I don't want to no, blow I'm, it. I'm coming out right now. <laughs> okay, yeah. welcome. No, no, I, I came out very late. Uh-huh. Why is that? I was because I, I mean, I even I, I went to acting school for four years and I didn't come out. That's how closeted I was. <laughs> wow. Um, because I thought it was the worst thing in the world and that I could kill it. I could, you know, I had a girlfriend. I thought of, I thought I could kill it. And, um, and then I eventually couldn't. But ironically, my, um, coming out late, uh, oddly enough, saved my life because I would most likely be dead if I'd come out early. Why? There's no question. I would have died of AIDS. There's mm. no question. I mean, not going to question, there's a possibility I would have escaped it, but I doubt it. So you were in the closet and you weren't, like, active? You didn't have a boyfriend or anything? No, I didn't have sex till I was, like, mm, I mean, I, I, I fooled around with girls. Um, I didn't have sex with a man until, like, 22, 23. Mm. Yeah, no, no, very late. Yeah. And then I, I made up for it, but, I, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> You've had to chop some wood I, I, since then. I, I chopped some wood, yeah. That wood chopping, as it were, is explored in his latest comedy album, Not a Fan. The title refers to an incident way, way too profane for me to get into here, even on podcast. Okay, fine, I'll play a moment of it. Then around his neck, he has a sign that says, The Human Urinal. Oh, I know what you're thinking! I know what you're thinking! You admire him for going for what he wants, right? I get it. But you question his fashion sense. You'll have to explore the rest on your own. Scott grew up, moved to Toronto, and eventually joined the kids in the hall. And he was openly gay, which didn't happen a lot on TV in the 80s. This is from the Kids in the Hall TV show. Scott Thompson. group. Well, it's uh, funny that you should mention that. Because it, it has recently come to my attention that I am not uh, gay. <gasps> I, I thought I was, but I made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sorry. I guess I was in a hurry. <laughs> okay, enough said. So you grow up with uh, in a group of five boys, and then you mm-hmm. go on to join yeah. a group mm-hmm. of five boys. I know, I know. <laughs> was that coincidence, you think? I don't think so. Yeah. No. I mean, it is a coincidence, but I, I, on, I think I know how to know. Five guys is like five people. It's a hockey lineup. Right. And so so there's the goalie, there's the left wing, right wing and the, you know, uh, the two defensemen and the center. And I knew what I was. I know I'm left wing. That's it. Uh-huh. And, and I know that's what I played. And when I met the kids in the hall, it was 
it's interesting that I, I sought out the very model that I was fleeing. Mm. <laughs> it's just like I fled this ship. You know, I abandoned this ship, right? And then I found another ship that was also sinking, filled with the exact same crew. And I went, oh, that's the crew that I should join. <laughs> Scott's membership in the group began when he threw donuts at them in 1984. I went to a midnight show with my friend Darlene. She said, you're going to love these guys. And I remember just this moment of like, oh, that's my future I, it was like love at first sight. Mm-hmm. I, I And I went, I said to my friend, I'm going to be in that group. And so I found a donut, donut taped under my seat. And I'm like, what the hell? And then I found other seats and they all had donuts taped under them. And I thought, oh, they're, you, they need these donuts for like a bit they're going to do later. So I'm going to ruin their bit. <laughs> it's so stupid. So I took all the donuts and I started throwing them at them. Thinking, and and I remember Bruce McCullough going, "Who the hell's throwing donuts at us?" And I was like, "It's me." <laughs> and I, I just, it was like you know, like I guess like a, like a, like a boy trying to impress a girl back, like doing a wheelie or something. I went, "They have to notice me." But the boy doesn't drive the bike over the girl in that scenario. That's basically, yeah, right. It's the boy hitting the girl and breaking her leg, and then they (laughs) fall in love, and they live happily ever after. You'd arrange the meet That's called meeting cute (laughs) in Brampton. It was your rom-com. I thought, these boys are damaged. They're going to react to (laughs) this act of violence. I mean, there's no no question that it's, it's violence. They invited you to join the group after that show? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. They <laughs> were, were furious. <laughs> I was just an asshole. But I remember them looking at me like, what the hell? But it was Mark. And that Mark that did it. Then Mark saw me perform in theater sports. Uh-huh. I used to do improvisation. And I used to wear pearls. I would wear strands of pearls around my neck. And in, this is in the this is in 1984, 85. No one was doing that. And I remember Mark seeing me, and, and he 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 told the boys that I was someone worthwhile. And they were like, I don't know. They all they were like freaked out by me. And then I just never went away. And then they asked me to do a guest spot with them, and I arrived with a bag of wigs and ladies' dresses, and that was it. <laughs> I never went away. Scott Thompson found comfort in groups of five guys who he regards as brothers, first when they're related to him, then when they're not. And it's not even that this configuration makes him happy. I wouldn't say happy. Uh, I I would say um, fulfilled. I I think for us, and I'm just going to speak for myself, I think... Happiness was something that maybe we thought was unattainable, but one thing that was attainable was was um, being the best. Um, we knew we were the best, and that might have been a, a, a substitute for happiness. Mm. Um, we were very arrogant. We were like, there's no one as good as us. We're going to change comedy. And we were all like that. And um, so the violence that you talked about before of the the, mm-hmm. the, the comedy violence of trying to mm-hmm. own the room, that wasn't the five of you against one another. That was the five of you against the world. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. We. I mean, we, we, there was lots of infighting mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff that I described earlier with my brothers definitely happened in this group as well. I mean, there was enormous emotional violence towards each other. And um, and I'll be honest. And there was physical violence in our group. Yes. But for us, we all come from we all come from pretty fractured backgrounds. You know, basically the, the two things in our family were they were the parents were alcoholics or violent or both. And um or else in Mark's case, the parents were um distant and just not there. In light of that, here's a sketch with the whole group. Scott, Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, and Mark McKinney. Scott speaks first. Hey, any of you guys ever beat up your dad? What? What? What are you talking about? Ever beat up your dad? No. no. Never? No. no, I never Not beat up Not once? My... No. no. Well, surely you've thought about it, though. Well, no. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought so. Okay. Well, maybe I've thought yeah. about it. If you were going to do it, right, do you think you could take him? Could you take your old man? <laughs> I don't know. Think about it. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess I could take him. I guess I could beat up my own father. Of course, he's 70. <laughs> I couldn't do it, but I'm just uncomfortable with emotion. That's oh, my yeah. problem. Oh, I know. But I know your father. I think Hammy's been asking for it for years. I don't know. My dad, he's wily. He's one wily commuter, you know? Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't be that wily, Mark. If you were going to try it, though, right? Yeah. How would you do it? Yeah. Just what if? Yeah, what if? Just yeah. what, if. what if? Oh, drunk at a wedding. Ask him to dance. Get him out on the dance floor and then... Kapow! <laughs> Stay down, please, sir. <laughs> I should point out that while they're talking about this, they're all making sandwiches at a table. Uh, I guess I'd wait till he's in the den. Yeah. Yeah, wait till he's in the den watching Alf. <laughs> Eating off a TV tray, wearing those slippers. Oh, and then I, then I, then I blind him with salt, and I bash him on the head with a channel changer. And, and, and then I take down that big Marlin from over the bar. You know that stuffed Marlin yeah. I've been staring at all my life. Well, I take that baby down, and well, no more Alf today, Daddy. <laughs> We were related to each other. We were, we, and we became brothers. I mean, I honestly think of them as my brothers. I love them like crazy, and they are my brothers. And there's no, I'll be with them forever. The group made it huge. If you see good sketch comedy today, chances are the kids in the hall influenced it. They're kind of like the Rolling Stones to SNL's Beatles, right? They're darker, weirder, a little more dangerous. Professional life was going great for Scott. Personal life, not so much. His brother Dean had been struggling with mental illness. We were only a year apart. So, you know, they call that Irish twins. Mm -hmm. So um, we grew up together. We literally lived together for 18 years. Like we had, I never had my own room. I always was with him. You know, we were bunk beds, that kind of thing. And my brother and I were absolutely, completely different. He was, um, you know, he was younger than me. But he looked older. Everyone always assumed he was older. He was masculine. He was athletic. He was handsome. He was um, a, a lady killer. Um, everything he did turned to gold. He could play hockey like nothing. You could give him, you could say, oh, this kid's never played lacrosse. They give him a lacrosse stick. He'd know how to play lacrosse. And in a, in a day, a week later, he'd be the best guy in the team. Hmm. So he was everything that a boy was supposed to be. And he was the most, um, in my my family, he was the, the easiest to get along with. Um, he, he was just like a, a golden boy. And then... Um, at around 18, he changed. I went away for a year. I was in a program called Canada World Youth, where um, Canadian kids are, they live in the third world for 10 months, and then just to basically to learn about the world. Mm -hmm. and, um, when I, and I lived in the Philippines, and when I came back, um, my brother was no longer there. It, it seemed to be like I went away, and I came back, and 10 months later, he was gone. And I'll never forget coming in. And my parents had been writing me letters telling me that things had been happening. And I didn't understand that. And I didn't buy it. I was like, this is crazy. He's, I'm the crazy one. He's the athlete. I thought he was just showing off. I just remember very clearly coming in the door and all my brothers were there. And I could, I was like, where's Dean? And they go, oh, he'll come down. And he'd been in his bedroom and he came downstairs. And I remember seeing him at the end of the hall. And I, um... I just remember looking in his eyes and going, "What? Where is he?" I just remember it was like, um, like he was like honestly, like he was possessed, mm -hmm. and there was it was just not him, and, and I never really saw him again. I mean, for years and years, and it and then it just became it, it, this these these things like he would he would I would come home and he would bring me into the basement and say things like, "I need to rewrite Shakespeare," and I'm like, "I think he's." I don't think you do. I think Shakespeare's good. No, no, I need to rewrite Shakespeare. I need to re rewrite Julius Caesar. I'm like, really? I think it's kind of perfect. No, no, it needs tanks. I'm like, what? Tanks. I need to rewrite Julius Caesar, and I need to put tanks in. I need to give it modern warfare. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I was furious at him. Or he'd say to me things like, I am the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. I'm like, that's me. I'm the, I've got the Christ complex, not you. Would you go out and play tennis? 
Dean couldn't just change back. That's not how mental illness works. He got worse, and Scott didn't know how to handle it. I was not a good brother. I was not, um, I did not have empathy for it. I was actually furious. Um, and Why I were just, you furious? I was furious because um, he was taking all the attention. And he, he took all the attention for a long, he sucked all the air out of the room once he got sick. And he got very religious. He became born again. And, and then he became very anti-gay. And he was always trying to, like, save me. And I needed to find Jesus Christ, too. And so um, we, we became very estranged. And uh, this went on for years and years. And then he was hit by a car. He was very cursed. And he went into a coma. And he was in the coma for a long time. And then when he came out, my family was so naive. We thought that, oh, maybe the car accident killed the craziness. <laughs> like, oh, like we literally were that stupid. So he eventually recovered. But he walked funny. And he talked like this. And that kind of halting way, mm-hmm. and um, and then the schizophrenia came back, mm-hmm. and so he he was very cursed. He had um, developmental problems, physically physical problems, and for a guy like that who was such a beautiful human being, like a, a physically beautiful and and athletic, to have his body betray him, I think in many ways was almost worse than his mind betraying him. And then eventually he became, um, you know, he became obsessed with a girl and he got in trouble. He became, he, he stalked her and she took out a restraining order against him. And then he got arrested. And, and that was the only time when he got arrested where the family could actually intervene and have him committed. And that was a terrible, terrible decision that my parents had to make. And, and I think they made the right decision. And so they committed him, and he was um, diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, and that was, and then the family could kind of talk about it. Mm. But, um, you know, and then they put him on medication, and it changed him. I mean, it, it definitely, um, I think it killed um, the voices mm-hmm. in his head, but it, it gave him enormous, um, I mean, I don't know if, I think the drugs are probably a lot better today, um, but then they, the drugs made him fat, and um, he couldn't control his um, saliva, and he was always, he would drool all the time, and I honestly think that's what killed him. I really do. He hated what his body was doing? I do, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only reason. I think I just think he looked at himself, look at me. You know, he was like 34, like, I'll never get a woman. You know what I mean? I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have children. I, I can't play sports. My mind doesn't work. Dean Thompson died by suicide. What year was that that he died? Uh, um, uh, 1995. Uh, and that's funny, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not really, uh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> take all the time you need. I just don't usually uh, talk about him, but it was, uh, sorry. Uh, Yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was 1995, it was that, it was a terrible year. Um, It was just, everything went wrong. Yeah. I mean, that was just the year that everything fell apart in in my life, and actually all the kids in the hall life. Um... My brother killed himself. Um, uh, Kevin's marriage broke up. Um, Dave's marriage broke up. Um, everyone's just fell into it. We, we hated each other. And after all that, and carrying all that, Scott had to keep going. More in a moment. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show wherever we can. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. Now, that could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Quick thanks to all of our sponsors. You know, a lot of the times you'll hear me use a promotional code for use at checkout. You know, use promo code HILARIOUS, get a discount, that kind of thing. And I want to point out when you use those, dear listeners, not only do you get great deals, but it really helps the show. See the sponsors, see that Hilarious World listeners are a great audience and that they buy things and sign up for things. And then those sponsors want to keep sponsoring us and that keeps the show strong and keeps it going. So remember to use those codes, shop at those sponsors. It's like casting a vote for the Hilarious World of Depression. It's important support. Thanks. How do you feel, patient 957? Oh, um... Like a, uh, like a fresh towel drying on the line on a summer's day. Oh, I, I feel like, a, like a, a little worm peeking its head out of the ground after a rainstorm and seeing no robin. Oh, <laughs> oh, I feel like God's rubbing my tummy. You know, I haven't felt this happy since my son came to visit at Christmas. This could be it. Well, it's a strong maybe. Well, it could be it. That's Scott Thompson from the 1995 Kids in the Hall movie Brain Candy, made after their TV show ended. It's a dark movie, largely about antidepressant medication. And I don't mean this as a knock against it. It's pretty goddamn weird. After Brain Candy came out, Kids in the Hall, as a group, began to crumble. I asked Scott why. Tragedy. Trauma. Yeah, I think trauma. I think that I think all the undiagnosed trauma that the five of us has suffered in our own lives and the trauma that we visited upon each other and also uh, the depths that we went to that we actually still go to in our work brought things up from the surface. You know what I mean? Like demons. I don't mean literally, but I think that we stirred so much shit up that the water got very, very murky for a while, and it took about five years for that silt to settle and that we could see clearly again. But there was a period after the kids, after Brain Candy, which was a disaster financially, mm-hmm. that broke us. Um, we thought that we'd be like Monty Python, right? We would make movies every three years. We would do television specials. We just really thought that's what would happen. But we had no idea that our movie would call, would be such a dud. I mean, I, I'm very proud of it, and I think it holds up. But, man, Paramount was freaked out by it. First of all, you have to remember, Hollywood at the time was run by closet cases on medication. <laughs> so, <laughs> so... A movie that literally rips open the closet and 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 satirizes depression medication yeah. is not going to be pop with men in dresses. It just was not popular. The group broke up, and here was Scott, having lost a brother to suicide and having lost his professional brothers from the kids in the hall, and he's unemployed. Oh, I lost my mind. Yeah, so I, I fell into the depression. Here again, I was naive. I believed that what I'd done in my life and, and, and my career and, and the talent that I had was enough for me to actually have a, new, a regular career. I thought, well, I'll go to the next level now. I'll get to do guest star on sitcoms. Maybe I'll get my own show like Dave. I'll get to be in movies. I'll get to be seen. I'll get to play all kinds of characters. But I, I had severely underestimated the level of homophobia in the world. And I, I realized very soon after the 
brain candy when I was on Larry Sanders that I was not going to be allowed out of my box. And that made me uh, crazy. Scott spent three seasons on The Larry Sanders Show, starring the late Gary Shandling. He played Brian, personal assistant to Hank Kingsley, played by Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, there. Come on. Me. You are so tense. Give it up. There you go. Oh, that's good. You see? I can Uh, tell. I can feel it all in your back. uh, You're mad. You're angry uh, because Darlene ran away, right? Because she left you. I know. I felt exactly the same way when Keith ran off. I'm sorry. Was Keith your dog? No, he was my lover. We were together for five years. Sorry, um, I'm not not following you. You, 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 um, Your lover? Yeah, he was my boyfriend. Mm. Are you... um, Are you gay? Yeah, but that was two years ago and I got over it. So you're not, you're not gay? What do you mean? Um, this is a difficult thing to say. I became a tool for liberals to showcase their credentials. Mm. And uh, it made me furious. You were the non-threatening gay man? That's right. And they would just hire me to play the gay guy, the neutered. And there was the neutered gay guy. And I was like, I am so much more than this. Why can't you? I can understand the right not seeing me as a fully-fledged human being, but for the left to do this to me was a betrayal. Yeah. I felt betrayed. How dare you hire me to show off to the world that, oh, we're good with gays, but you won't let me play the womanizer. You won't let me play just the normal guy. You won't let me play the killer. I have to play this neutered homosexual fantasy for you so that you can show everybody how liberal you are. I felt so used. Up until very, very recently. I could handle bigotry, open bigotry from the right, more than I could handle this uh, cloaked bigotry from the left. And I became consumed with anger. And I I, I had those years at 95 to 2000 are not good years. I I would say I was probably clinically depressed. Yeah, I was probably yeah, I I was doing a lot of drugs. I was just I was not a happy person. Like after I and then I remember I I was on a show called Providence. I got hired to be on a show called Providence, and I played this gay guy um, who ran a um, uh, like a, a bakery for dogs. You're never the focus. You're not even remotely the focus. You're just there to serve the main characters and I was like I can do so much and that was it for me that was when I kind of cracked and then I did a thing called Touched by an Angel and that was it working with Della Reese I'm like I'm done I'm out of here but I, I think I think I had a I think I had a bre- nervous breakdown I think so I don't know it takes some hunting but you can't find Scott's episode of Touched by an Angel online In 2000, he was living in Hollywood with his now former boyfriend, Joel, a French documentary filmmaker. And he decided that he would make a movie about Saddam Hussein. Imagine, in 2000. Mm, visionary. Uh, yeah, I'm like, why? No one cares about that old guy. And he's like, I have a feeling that it's going to be important. And I'm like, okay, whatever. He goes, I'm going to go to uh, Iraq. And I'm like, why would you go to Iraq? Who goes to Iraq? And he did. He went there undercover. It was amazing what he did. He came back with all this footage. And we made this movie together. I wrote the narration. We were just naive. I've always been naive about the world. And I just assume things will work out. And um, they, they quite often don't. And it was basically like this kind of like a dynasty, like looking at, at the, the Saddam Hussein family like dynasty, like almost like they were on Dallas. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a very fascinating movie. It's called Uncle Saddam. And it got released. And then um, he, about two weeks before it happened, he, started, he said to me that somebody had put our 
address online? And I didn't even understand what that meant. I'm like, why would they do that? He goes, they're going to attack us. And I, was, I didn't even understand. What do you mean they're going to attack us? And then uh, one day, there was a man outside our, um, our home in a car, and I would see him every day, and I was like... Are we being watched? Like it just—it it just didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, I'm an actor. I'm a comic. What's going on? And I remember I'd see this guy sitting in his car reading a paper, like he was on Get Smart, like it was crazy. And I would say, this guy's watching us. I still to this day don't know who it was. If he was from the group that hit us or the group or the Americans, I don't know. Hmm. And then one about a week before, we were—I was on the phone, and. Uh, it crackled, like something happened. There was like a bad connection. And then I heard people talking about me. And I went, our phone is tapped. And then Joel got increasingly more and more frightened, and I didn't know what was happening to him. And then on November the 1st, 2000, uh, they struck. And um, we woke up, and they had, um, a group had come in the night, and they'd... um, They'd taken the very big garbage cans in L.A., the the blue one, the black one, and the green one, and they'd filled them with gasoline, and they'd set them on fire on the lawn, and they'd taken buckets of red paint, and they'd splashed the house so it dripped off like blood. Mm -hmm. And then they'd put on the floor of our foyer a note that said, in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, burn this satanic film or you will be dead dead. And they'd underline dead, which meant that it was serious. <laughs> and, well, oh, they, un- they underline dead. It's not in italics. <laughs> if it was in italics, they're like, hey, you don't have to take it seriously. If it was in bubble letters, you might not have to worry bubble about it. <laughs> yeah. went into hiding. Scott moved back to Canada for a while and planned his next move. And that was the moment. The one, it was a good thing in some way because it, it made me go, I've been in such a depression for five years that I went, what is it that that I do that makes me happy? Make things. So I decided I would write a show, and I had not done any one-person show in five years. I hadn't done any kind of performing solo in years. And I went, i got to get back up on stage, and I've got to write a show. This is hilarious. (laughs) Imagine, about terrorism (laughs) in 2001. So I started writing this show about Buddy Cole, the very, and it was 12 characters dealing with terrorism, all kinds of terrorism. And I thought, I'm going to talk about all the things in my life that, violence, because I thought, what is it about me? Why do I attract such violence? Because when I was 16, I was in a high school shooting, and so I've, I've been plagued by violence my whole life. And I thought to myself, I must be a magnet. There must be something in me that attracts violence. There must be something in me that wants it. Otherwise, that was how I thought. So I thought, I'm going to create this show about human beings dealing with terrorism, whether that's religious terrorism or or domestic or just the way human beings terrorize each other. So were you pumping all the trauma from the firebombing into a show? Yes. I took the trauma from the firebombing, from just being, you know, being my childhood, being in this massacre when I was a boy, all these things, all this having encephalitis. I'd had so many things. I'd almost died so many times already that I thought I have to write about this. And so I created this show with Paul Bellini called The Lowest Show on Earth, which was referring to a human, the animal nature in us, that, Mm -hmm. that that dinosaur brain. And the very first piece was Buddy Cole (laughs) going to Afghanistan to buy anthrax because they heard that it smelled pretty and it came in a lovely vial. And he goes to Afghanistan to buy anthrax. And while he's there, he decides, hey, why not take down the Taliban while I'm here? And I wrote all this, this monologue, which isn't insanely prophetic and um this is all pre-9-11 pre-9-11 yes and then um i got a um (laughs) it's funny to talk about it now um it wasn't funny at the time but then i i toured the show and then i got a six-week run off broadway 
and I was supposed to open my show on September the 19th, 2001. Mm. And on September the 10th, my posters, like 10,000 posters, I paid for the show, I produced it, I, I co-wrote it, I starred in it. This was my baby. I sunk all my money into it. This was the show that was going to change everything for me. People were going to see what kind of, you know what I mean, that I could write, that I could play all kinds of people, that I, you know, that this was the show that was going to change my whole career. And and on the 10th, uh, my posters went up all over Manhattan. And then on the 11th, the world fell apart. The 11th, the 11th happened. They pulled the plug. They called it the, the I didn't get it. I lost everything. And then I just, I lost my mind. I, I, I just, I became this, I don't know, I wandering Manhattan, not understanding what had happened to me. Scott Thompson's story, I've noticed, contains several times when he falls apart. But those are always followed by times where he kind of rallies. He says his post 9-11 breakdown lasted about a year until he started reconnecting with the kids in the hall. Says he and Dave Foley overcame their longstanding feud. They talked it out. And then the five of us started finding our way back to each other. Plus, in those years, we discovered that we'd gotten bigger than ever. We were like, oh, my God, we're known everywhere. Our group, we just kept growing and growing and growing, even though we weren't doing anything. And I think that that tour, which we called Tour of Duty, I think that's what brought me back. Because it was like, and it's interesting, we called it Tour of Duty. Because, it, we, I, I, again, I'm not going to speak for them, but for myself, I see myself as a soldier. And I see myself as a, I do see myself as a warrior in many ways. And that I had neglected my, um, uh, my purpose. Mm. And I had let the world get to me. You are a warrior then. Yes. And so I'd let the world get to me and I'd put my, you know, my shield down and my sword. And I was like, OK, take me. And I'd given up in a, in a way. And then once I realized that my sword was comedy, that it was a beautiful thing that I could do, I was better. And, and, that, and that's what brought me back. In 2009, Scott was diagnosed with cancer, B-cell non-Hodgkin's gastric lymphoma. I was living here, and again, I'd fallen into depression again, but I went home because I had no health care. And then Canada, um, my beloved Canada, uh, took me in and cured me. Mm-hmm. And without even, a, no questions asked. I mean, beautiful thing. Yeah. And, um, and and then uh, I, uh, I went home and I decided I would become a stand-up comic. I, would, I had nothing to be afraid of any longer. I was like, what are you going to do? You've tried to kill me a million times. You're just not going to do it. I'm mm-hmm. probably going to live for a long time, you know, just for spite. And um, <laughs> I uh, thought, well, I got nothing to be afraid of anymore, so I'm going to reinvent myself. And so I started doing stand-up. And I don't think, see, I would have probably, if I'd been a young kid today, I would have probably gone into stand-up right away, but not for my generation. That was not possible. You couldn't do the kind of stand-up that I do mm-hmm. in those days. You could not. You could not yeah. be openly gay. That's just the way it was. You could not. And um, so, um, and that's what brought me, and that was, the, and again, this was also what brought me back after the cancer was art, stand-up. Reinventing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't say that cancer gave me depression because honestly, uh, in, in a strange way, uh, the year of where I fought it, where I beat it, in many ways was the worst year of my life. But in some ways, it was a good year because I had, and this is ugly, but I had a, um, a monster to defeat. And I, I think that's this weird thing in my life where I kind of like, I'm always looking for something to fight, like a beast, to fight. And I was like, oh, this is the biggest beast I've come across. And I thought, I can, I can beat this beast. I can beat this guy. And, um, and once I did, it, it, it was like, and, and, and so when I have a, a goal, I'm quite happy. 
it, it's funny. You, you talked earlier about how you weren't the warrior and how somebody else was a warrior and you were the comic. But Yes, I know. It turns out he was the warrior all along. Yeah, because that's, that's kind of, that is how I see myself. So I think back then it wasn't, I thought, how can I be a warrior? I'm not masculine enough. But I've, I've understood, over my lifetime, I've come to understand that uh, that doesn't, masculinity it doesn't mean, it, you, could, you can be full of masculinity. That doesn't make you a warrior. Um, that a warrior's uh, strength lies in their heart. And, and I, got a, I got a strong heart. And um, so, yeah, I guess in a way, I do see myself that way. Yes, I, I do. Yeah. There's a really great new book coming out about the kids in the hall. It's called One Dumb Guy. It's written by Paul Myers. Paul knows that Toronto comedy scene really well. His brother is Mike Myers. It's a terrific look deep into the kids in the hall. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media superintendent. Kate Moose is executive producer. Recording engineer this time around was Johnny Vince Evans, and technical director was Corey Shreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. 8255 spells talk. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you or your loved ones. Starting a conversation about a topic like that can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there, too. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. You can listen to the archive of shows there. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. You find out about new shows. They're sometimes being formed right there on Facebook. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, why we use words taken from mental illness, words like OCD, PTSD, depression, and then use them for things they don't really mean. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease pain? Say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know